Uh, let me just kind of run through this because when we talk about Messiah, when we talk about Jesus coming, uh, I, I, there's just so much history. There's so much richness in this. And so we see in Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall of Adam and Eve, this is the first, first sign that something is going to happen, that God's saying, I am setting something in order, and you know, I have set something in motion, and here it comes, that a Messiah will be coming, and he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to, the, uh, to Satan. He says, between your offspring and her, your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so that is the first indication that God is setting something in order. A Messiah will be coming. Then we move to uh, Genesis chapter 12. God makes a promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through, uh, through Abraham, that a Messiah would be coming. It would be coming through Abraham. Later on we see that it's more defined coming through the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then about 1,000 B.C., Psalms 22 speaks about the death of the Messiah. Um, about 700, you know, this, 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 man, this is great stuff because this is all prophetic. I mean, thousands of years before Jesus even shows up, these statements about him are being made. 700 years before Jesus is even born in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says that uh, Micah speaks about the place that Jesus would be born, that he would be, would be born in Bethlehem. And then when we get to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 4, it says, Even so, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time, the fullness of time, that, you know, that time from Adam and Eve when God first spoke that, that time that God spoke that word to Abraham, all through the Old Testament line, we get to the fullness of time and it says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so, uh, I, let me just point out a couple of other things along that. You know, um, in, in that same line, uh, God spoke to Abraham. He says, I'm going to change your name. Uh, he says, you're no longer going to be called Abraham at the time that God was speaking to him. His name was Abram. God says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means the father of many. And so there's a story. We see a story within a story. We see these names. Uh, we see Joseph as he goes into uh, to bondage, uh, as he goes into captivity, um, that uh, he has a son after he gets out of prison. Pharaoh raises him up. He gets out of prison and uh, Pharaoh establishes him. He has a son. Uh, he names his son uh, Manasseh, which means that God has made me to forget my hardships and my family. So when someone would look at, at Joseph's son and they would say, what is your son's name? He would say Manasseh. They would automatically think that, oh, God has made you forget your hardships and your family. And then he has another son and his name's the son Ephraim. And which means that God has made me, made me to be fruitful in the land of affliction. And so these names tell a story. Uh, when we get to a little further on, jo uh, Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. He loves Rachel, doesn't have a heart for Leah. Leah becomes pregnant, gives birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, it is because God has seen my misery. That's what Reuben means. God has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. And she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved. 
Uh, he gave me this one too, and she named him Simeon, and she conceived and gave birth, and she said, now my, at last my husband will become uh, attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi and conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And so when you look at Leah and you look at her family and her children, they're telling a story, and the story is that uh, because the Lord has seen my misery, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, now my husband will become attracted to me. This time I will praise the Lord. Her, the names of her children are telling a story. And so that's true, I think, in the same way in the New Testament as we look at different names of different towns. You know, I mean, we think of, you know, today when we want to name our children, what's a cool name? What's a, what's a popular name? But names back then had more of a significant meaning. And so what I want to look at today is, and I want us to look at, is the names of the towns that Jesus came from because I believe there is a message in the names of the towns that he came from. And the first one is that he came from Nazareth. And we see the story in Luke chapter 2. As I mentioned last week, there are two places that the Christmas story is recorded, Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, it says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, or in those days, Caesar Augustus, Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census taken uh, place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. Uh, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, this is where he and, and Mary were living in Galilee, and they went up to uh, Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time had come for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and or cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Caesar Augustus, uh, it's said of him that when he came to office that Rome was uh, built in brick, and when he left office, uh, Rome was built in marble. Uh, he had a great financial mind, and a lot of the financial principles and practices that, that he used back then, great financial minds still use in the world today. Uh, widely accepted, great man of finances, and uh, had a, you know, just uh, when it came to developing, he was a genius. Uh, back to Mary and Joseph, it was not their plan. It was not their plan uh, to have this baby in Bethlehem, not even on the horizon. But all of a sudden, a letter comes in the mail, or a poster appears, a messenger comes to town and says, here is the decree of Caesar that you need to go back to your family line, you need to register so we can take this census. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, in their home they had already prepared a room for the baby, they were getting ready for this baby, friends and family were coming, and then all of a sudden the decree comes and, and there's a change of plans. And, you know, sometimes life is like that for you and I, that, you know, we may have plans and dreams and visions and all of a sudden something comes along and, and you know, it may seem like a hardship. This was not easy for them. Now, she is late in her pregnancy. It's a difficult journey. It's about 70 or 80 miles from Nazareth down to uh, Bethlehem and to Jerusalem anyway. It's a, long, uh, it's a long journey for anyone, but especially for a woman that's pregnant and late in her pregnancy. And so 
you know, I, I, you know, I'm thinking, you know, God, why would you do this? I mean, you know, I mean, this is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. Why don't you prepare a nice palace that Jesus could be born in? But see, I want to tell you that God is more uh, concerned with, you know, the way our lives are going, that our lives would glorify him and magnify him than he is with our comforts. And that's what, you know, God is doing in this story right here. It's not about Mary and Joseph's comfort. It's not even about Jesus's comfort. It's about fulfilling the word of God. The scripture has already said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Somehow God has got to get a pagan king, an ungodly man to, to issue a decree to get his son from Nazareth to be born in Bethlehem. Um, there's something to be said about that. Number one, you know, just uh, the, the word Nazareth uh, in the Greek means to separate or to set apart. And in those days, remember what Jesus said to Nathaniel or, uh, or what Nathaniel said about Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There was a stigma. Uh, there was something about that name. It, you know, it just, uh, uh, you know, it was not a place that people wanted to be from. It had a reputation. Then it had a reputation. Nazareth had a reputation. But when we think of Nazareth today, what do we think of? What's the first thing that we think of when we think of Nazareth? We think of Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so, you know, because of the work that God did in this individual, and I hope that you can, you know, make the connection, because of the work, it's not about your past, your reputation, what you used to be, it's about the work of God in your life that makes you what you are today and makes you different. He has separated you from your past. Uh, Exodus chapter 33, we're thinking about being set apart or to be separated. And Moses says, if your present doesn't go with us, do not bring us from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Uh, think about this. You know, in the time of captivity, when they were in, in Egypt, remember when God is trying to bring them out. He's trying to bring them out of, of, out of Egypt and out of bondage. Remember when the plagues begin to happen, you know, God said, I am going to put a distinction between you and, and the people of Egypt. I am going to separate you from the people of Egypt so that when the plagues come up on the people of Egypt, they're not going to come up on you because I have separated you from the plagues that are coming up on this land. Um, in 2 Corinthians, it says that we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. This is the calling that God has on our life. Just like Jesus had a calling on his life, leaving the town of Nazareth, which means to be separate or to, to set apart. And, and God has got a call on our lives to be separate, to be set apart uh, for his work, separate from the world. But when God who set me apart. This is Paul's testimony. And, and, and I'm not going to go into that. Most of you know what his testimony was like, how he, he persecuted the church, put them in prison and jail and put them to death. It says, but when God, who set me apart from birth. And I want to just tell you that this is not just specific to Paul, that God has called you I mean, he called, just like he called Jeremiah, he told Jeremiah, he said, before 
This is a hard one to get our minds around. Before you were in your mother's womb, I called you. I had a purpose. I had a call on your life. Uh, Paul is saying here, but when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I want you to just think about Paul's life. You think about the life that he lived. He lived an ungodly life. I mean, he was, he was very religious, but he was not very godly. He knew all about the Jewish laws and religion and customs, but he was not really a follower of God. He, in fact, he was opposed of the work that God was doing. But God's hand, and, and many of you may be in that place today, or you were in that place at one time where you were not following God, apart from God, doing your own thing, and then all of a sudden, you know, you walk into the gospel light and your heart and your mind and your soul is illuminated that, yes, there is a God in heaven who has a son whose son died for your sins, and there is a heaven and there is a hell, and that God is calling you, and all of a sudden you decide your heart is just being wooed by the Holy Spirit, and you decide, and maybe that's happening to someone today, that your heart is being wooed and you decide, yes, I want to be a follower of Jesus. No matter what you've been involved in, no matter what practices you've done, I mean, it can be the occult, it can be witchcraft, it can be sorcery, it can be pornography, it can be just any sin, any bondages in this world, and the Holy Spirit comes and says, you know what, it's time to change. And God's saying, I am going to separate you from what you used to be. In Psalm chapter 4, it says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord will hear when I call him. And then we see the separation uh, in Matthew chapter 25 at the end of the age. Not only has he set us apart in this life, in this world, from the things of this world, but he has set us apart for eternity. In Matthew chapter 25, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And so where Jesus came from, the town of Nazareth means to separate or to be set apart Jesus was set apart for the Father's work, and we are set apart as well for the Father's work. The second thing that I want us to look at is that he came from Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, it says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then in Luke chapter 2, it says, uh, verse 8, There were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Not just the Jewish people, but all people. Today, in the town of David, we know that to be Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, 
The shepherds said one to another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Bethlehem means, the, the, the word translated, it's actually two words. Uh, Beth means uh, house, and Lehem means bread. It means house of bread. Now, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us until we get to uh, John chapter 6, and Jesus begins to talk about bread. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. The background of this, by the way, is that this is one of those miracles. One of these great miracles has just happened. You know, several thousand people get uh, fed with this, you know, uh, miraculous uh, uh, changing of, of the fish and the loaves. And, and there's thousands of people that are being fed. And, and the people are seeking Jesus because he fed them. And, and he's trying to tell them that there's more to life than just bread. And he says that to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses that has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh. It's what we talk about when we take the communion elements, the bread, which is his broken body, and the cup, which is, is, represents his shed blood. Um, this is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then in John chapter 6, verse 58, it says, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So we see, and I think it's uh, nine times here, uh, or, or in John chapter 6, we see the, the word bread used 18 times. And nine times he speaks about what it represents, the, the, the bread of God, the bread of heaven, the bread of life. Uh, this bread is my flesh. Uh, and, and so, and then we see another example of this where he's talking about, he, uh, he's talking to this, uh, I think, uh, this Syrophoenician woman, and he replies, she, she's got a, a daughter that is, uh, uh, that's uh, demon-possessed, and um, he's, she's looking to Jesus for, uh, for healing and for deliverance. And he says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread. So he's using bread here as a symbolism of deliverance. She wants deliverance, and he says it's not right to take the children's bread. He was sent to the household of Israel. He says, and she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered the woman and says, woman, you have great faith. Uh, your request is granted, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. So we see that bread... Um, you know, not only is it the bread of life, the bread of heaven, the bread that satisfies, uh, but there's a bread of deliverance as well. And that deliverance is for God's people. That we today, as people of God, as men and women that love Jesus, need deliverance from the things that try to hold us back in life, the, these bondages that try to hold us back in life. And so, uh, you know, as we think about the, the bread of heaven and we think about the, 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 the house of bread, uh, bringing into life the bread of heaven. I mean, there's just a, a real connection there that all of this bread that Jesus is talking about, what he is and how the symbolism is, that, 
the house of bread, the bread of heaven, the bread of life, is born uh, in the house of bread. The Bible says that he, speaking about uh, that God has made everything beautiful in its time, he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. And so that, you know, that remember Jesus when he was tempted by the devil and, and uh, the devil, one of the first things he says is take the stone and make it into bread. And Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so um, as we think about, you know, the, the different appetites that we have, and I, I want to just tell you that, you know, that God has created us with certain appetites, but he has created us with eternity in our hearts. And when we talk about eternity, eternity is not measured in length and it's not measured in time because it's eternity. But when the Bible talks about eternity, it's talking about the quality or the depth or the richness of life. That Jesus says that I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. I want to give you a greater life, a better life. And so that we are creative, we are wired, we're geared with certain, you know, God-given appetites. And all of these are, you know, uh, these can, all of these um, uh, different appetites can be found in the Word of God. For example, uh, we have an appetite for God. I mean, you know, that people are searching for God in all sorts of different places and different things. We have an appetite for pleasure. We have an appetite for food. We have an appetite for companionship. We have an appetite for sex and for authority and power. We have an appetite for work. And we have an appetite for wisdom and knowledge. All of these are God-given appetites. But I want to tell you that our appetite is a lot like fire. Uh, under control, it's a great thing. I mean, it can warm us. It can cook for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. But out of control, this appetite, like these appetites, fire out of control is destructive, and it will bring death to you. It will kill you. It will destroy you. And the same is true with this, with these God-given appetites. If we use them in the godly way, it's fine. But if we start using them in an ungodly way, they will destroy us. And God gives us these appetites to fulfill his purposes. And, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned, you know, God gives us an appetite for companionship. But if we ever, you know, uh, uh, try to satisfy that appetite for companionship with uh, pornography or prostitution or sex outside of marriage, that will destroy us. God has given us an appetite for authority and for power. But we can never use that appetite to harm or to hurt people or to lord it over people. Remember the second commandment was, you know, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to lord it over your neighbor by using your authority uh, to, to, to lord it over them or to rule over them or to bring uh, hurt or harm or pain to them. You use your godly authority uh, to, to bring, just like God does into our life, to bring blessings into our life, uh, to, to bring good to people's lives, to help people, but never to harm them. Uh, you know, any God-given appetite can be used sinfully. Uh, and, you know, how many times have you heard, I mean, you've heard great people. Uh, Michael Jackson comes to mind. You know, that he said that, you know, I had everything that a person could want in life. And I was one of the most miserable people on earth. And, and I've heard people like Elvis Presley say that. I had everything that I wanted, and I was one of the most miserable people 
on earth. Because, let me tell you, that sometimes we try to use the temporal to satisfy the eternal, and it will never work. The temporal things of this life, of this world, these things that I just mentioned, they can never satisfy eternity. God has set eternity in your heart. And, and you know, and we try to satisfy eternity with spirit or with temporal things, and it just won't work. And so you go from one temporal thing to another temporal thing, or one relationship to another relationship, and it doesn't satisfy. You're still hungry. Or we think that we can satisfy it with a new house or a new car or a new job or a promotion or more money, and it will never satisfy. Those things will never satisfy. You never see Jesus walking up to someone and saying to, you know, the leper or the, the woman that just lost her son, or, you know, the, uh, 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 or, or the blind guy, I'm trying to think of different instances, you never see him going up to those people and, say, and saying, hey, you know what, if you just had more money, your problem would be over. You never see him saying that because the temporal will never satisfy the eternal. And there's an eternal hunger in us that God has set eternity in your heart. And, and you are hungry for eternity. And that's why Jesus said, if you eat of this bread, if you eat of this bread from heaven that comes from the house of bread in Bethlehem, if you eat of this bread, you will be satisfied. All right. If you want to clap, that'd be a good place. And that's for him. Okay. And then finally, we see that, uh, you know, we look at, we look at Nazareth that being set apart, uh, being separated, and we look at Bethlehem, the house of God, or the house of bread, uh, look at Jesus being the bread of heaven, the bread of life, the bread that satisfies, and then finally I want us to look at Egypt. It says that when they had gone, this is talking about the wise men, uh, after they had gone from Herod to finding out where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and they brought their gifts and they worshiped him, says that when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Again, this is a prophetic word out of Egypt. I have called my son. Now, guys, I want you to think about this for a second. Why Egypt? I mean, there were so many. I mean, you could have gone to the east. You, you could have gone Moab. You could have gone to, uh, I, I mean, there's so You could have gone down into the Jordan. Could have gone to Syria. There's, you could have gone to Beersheba. There are so many places. That, there are thousands of places that he could have sent Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Why did he send them to Egypt? I'll tell you, because to the Jew... Egypt meant one thing. It meant slavery. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Out of slavery, out of this place of slavery and bondage, I have called my son. And we look at Exodus chapter 4, 22, and, you know, we've all heard that expression. It's in the songs. Crosby, Stills, and Nash sings it. You know, uh, the darkest hour 
is always just before the dawn. And that's what's happening in Egypt. The darkest hour is there. There, You know, Pharaoh says, oh, you want to worship God? You got time to worship God? That means, hey, I'm going to make things even more worse for you. I'm going to make things worse for you. I mean, you're going to go out and, you know, gather your own straw now. You got time to worship God? Forget that. You know, you're not only going to make adobes and bricks, you're going to gather your own straw. And then they're pleading with Moses, look what you've done. You've made our life more miserable than it already was before you showed up. You know, life was tough, and now it's just got harder for us. Moses, you know, what are you doing? And in the middle of that, this is what the Lord says, Israel, my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. And so God is calling, you know, his people then and today that because Jesus came out of Egypt, and I I just want to point out a couple of things that I believe that Egypt represents. I believe that Egypt represents bondage. Their forefathers were slaves, therefore they were born into slavery. Uh, Things that we're dealing with, things that we didn't even ask for. Just think about it. You know, if you were living in that time and and you're a little baby, this is before they, you know, started killing, you know, the men children or the male children, but you just woke up and you look around and all of a sudden you come to, you know, you've grown up to a place of understanding and you see your mom and your dad go out into the fields and they're making bricks and they're, you know, that you see all of the uh, pharaohs and, and all of the soldiers and the chariots and, and the guards and the spears and the chariots. And, and, and as a little child, you're just asking, why? What did I do to deserve this? Why? Why? Why is this happening in my life? You know, uh, we were... Um, Kimberly, I, I, I want to just share this if I can because... Uh, you know, on Friday, some of us went over to pray with Storm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a man and talking to a man that has all of his reason, all of his faculty, and, and he, he's in a body that's broken. He's in a prison, and his prison is this broken body, and it doesn't work. He has MS and a number of other things, and it's just like, it's just, it's melting down. And, and, and he's just wondering, why is this happening to me? Just like the children of Israel might be wondering, why is this slavery happening to me? And there are some things, and listen to this, I, I want to just tell you that, that when we talk about bondage is like being taken hostage. It was just like, you know, I, I didn't do anything. I just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, I'm in bondage. And that's the way they were. Exodus chapter 20 Maybe this will make a little more sense as I read this scripture. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to the thousands to those that love me and keep my commandments. Let me just tell you what that means, okay? The Bible talks about sin, and it talks about iniquity, and it talks about transgressions. They all sound the same, and, and, and essentially they all are sin. But iniquity is a lot like what we're talking about bondage. All of a sudden, you, just, you find yourself in a place that you didn't ask to be in. And the children, just like the children of Israel, they didn't ask to be in that place. But it was something that their forefathers had, had brought them into this place. When he talks about 
uh, visiting the iniquities uh, of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. What that means is that we have people in our past, in our heritage, that may have done things that we're suffering the consequence for today. It's just like, you know, why does this person deal with pornography and doesn't have any trouble at all with alcohol, and this person deals with alcohol and doesn't have any problem at all with pornography? It's just, you know, they just... The sins of the fathers were passed down, not as punishment. It's just like it, kind of in the DNA. And so he's saying that, there, that, that Jesus has come to set us free from all of this, from our bondages. He's come to set the captives free. Um, and when we talk about bondage, uh, captivity is, is kind of like being, uh, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Captivity comes from bondage is like that, or captivity, captivity is like that. But bondage is like, you know, you make a choice. You make a willful choice. Lord, I know this is what your word says. I know your word says, don't steal, I'm going to steal. I know your word says, don't lie, I'm going to lie. I know your word says what it says about adultery and fornication and homosexuality. I don't care what your word says. I am going to do it anyway. And so when we do that, then we enter into a place of slavery. We just say that I just sold myself into slavery. I've taken my hand, uh, God's hand off of me. I've taken God's hand away from me from all the blessings of God in my life and said to myself, for the joy that I'm going to receive from this sexual fulfillment or this desire that's going to be gratified in my life, for the joy that I'm going to receive, this temporal joy, I'm going to sell myself into slavery. And Jesus answered them, he says, most assuredly, I say to you that whosoever commits sin, you deliberately walk into this, is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free and he is willing to make you free today, you will be free indeed. And then Romans chapter 6, it said, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey. So if sin is tell you, telling you to do something uh, and you decide that you're going to do it, you are going to be a slave to sin, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness and life. And when you do that, when you deliberately walk in that, what you're, what you're doing is you're building a fort for the enemy to live in, Okay. Not to keep him out. You are building a fort for the enemy to live in. And that fort will affect your thought patterns and your habits. And the Bible calls these strongholds in our life. So we see bondage and we see captivity. Another one of these is sickness. And uh, it, it, I believe that Jesus has come to offer us freedom from sickness. Isaiah chapter 53 says uh, that Jesus came to heal the sick. In Psalm chapter 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities, and who heals all of your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit. 
Now we see in, in the gospel when we get into Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we see the ministry of Jesus. And it says that Jesus went out to minister and it says that all who had sicknesses and all who had diseases and all who were demon afflicted or demon oppressed came to Jesus and they were, he, he didn't turn. You cannot find one place where Jesus sent someone away and said, hey, you know what? Go say some more prayers. You know, go repent a little bit more. You know, your heart really isn't right. You think those were all righteous people? You think those were all godly people that came and they were healed and delivered and set free? Guys, I want to tell you, they were sinners just like we are. And it was his grace and his love and his mercy and his compassion that reached out to them because whether they did it ignorantly or they were born into it or they you know, just went boldly into sin, Jesus said, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive your sins, your iniquities, your transgressions. I'm going to forgive it all. All you have to do is have a willing heart. And the third thing that we see, or the fourth thing that we see, is fear, that I believe that Jesus has come to deliver us from fear. You know, someone has said that there's 365, over 300 uh, promises about, you know, not fearing or not having fear in the Bible. One for every day of our life. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. You know, he just talks about all kinds of things. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says that, so that by his death, by the death of Jesus, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held slavery by the fear of death. You know, is fear holding you back today? Is there something that's holding you back today? Because I want to, you know, I know that some of you probably came to hear, uh, you know, a nice little Christmas story about little Jesus in a manger. But I, I'm going to just tell you, it's beyond that. I mean, we got, he's out of the manger, okay? He's, he's out of the manger, and he is Messiah, and what I just shared with you is the things that Messiah came to do. Not just so that we could have a cute little Christmas story and put up some trees and, you know, tinsel and all of that. You know, that's good. That's fine. I'm, I'm in it. I'm, you know, I'm all in. You know, I'm, I'm buying gifts and I'm loving it. But, you know, he came to give us free. He came to give you freedom. He came to satisfy that hunger that's in you today. And I want to just tell you that you can walk out of here and you can try it again. You can try it over and over again. The temporal things will never bring satisfaction to eternal hunger that you have. Only the bread of heaven can. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray with you. And uh, hey, Donald, would you get the invite cards, please? Um, I want to just uh, remind you, next week, Dr. Rich Freeman, great. This is, I mean, this is like the fulfillment of prophecy. There's no greater thing, I, I think. You know, the, the, uh, Paul starts out in the book of Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. This guy that's coming next week, Dr. Richard Friedman, is a Jew that has received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I mean, this is awesome. All right, he's got a story. And he's going to tell it. I want you to bring your friends and let them hear this guy's incredible story. But uh, all of us have a story, by the way. You know, all of us have something that we can say. And uh, I, I just want to give you an opportunity right now. If something just clicked in your heart and your mind today and, you know, you recognize your need for God's gift. This is God's Christmas gift to us, his son a Savior, 
one who will save us from our sins. Not just take us to heaven, but break Satan's power and Satan's grip right now in your life. So no matter whatever you're struggling with, what your struggles are today, it, you may find yourself in captivity or in bondage or in fear or in sickness. No matter what you find yourself in today, no matter what place that you find yourself in today, there is freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free.